Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Okay, I'm going to start recording the minutes of this meeting. The date is June 9th, 2016. We're here in Trump Tower. Present are Donald Trump Jr., Paul Manafort, Jared Kushner, a Russian lady, some Russian dudes, General Zod, Kaiser Sose, a Kraken, Zeppo Malfoy. Really? That was the best Malfoy they could send? And Cersei Lannister. Also, what is that big air filter unit? I am the Dalek Emperor. I am not an air freshener. Dalek Emperor? Like on Doctor Who? I don't watch that show. Does anybody here watch Doctor Who? We Daleks are merciless and pitiless cyborg aliens, demanding total conformity, bent on conquest of the universe, and extermination of what we see as inferior. Fine, 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 whatever. We don't have time to nerd out over every villain in the room. Okay, now, if everybody ever brings up this meeting in a public forum, Don Jr. here is going to deny it for all of us. He's going to say it's a disgusting allegation. Well, we are disgusting. No, the allegation is disgusting because it would be disgusting if we were meeting. But we are meeting, so is that what is disgusting? No, we. if if you people would just listen, we're saying the allegation is disgusting because if a meeting like this one took place, that would be a disgusting thing. But our position is that it's disgusting to allege such a disgusting occurrence when it never happened. Even though, yes, technically, we are all here and it is disgusting. I don't get it. If we're going to get bogged down over this one thing, we're never going to get around to meddling in the American election. So the rest of you, listen to this show. And now, after a long weekend locked in R. Kelly's sex dungeon, Colin McEnroe. It was a long weekend, I'll tell you. Um, Let me tell you that today on The Scramble, we have lots of really interesting things we're going to talk about. But because we're, I mean, we have time constraints, so we are not going to talk about the death of Martin Landau, Landau, although he was a great actor, or or of George Romero, who essentially gave us zombies as we know them, or Roger Federer, who, as athletes go, is kind of a zombie. I mean, he's not a zombie, but he's like the least interesting, great athlete of my lifetime, I think. Uh, But he did win eight Wimbledons. And nobody cares because I I don't know. Is it a Swiss prejudice? I I don't know. Uh, We're not going to mention Ed Sheeran on Game of Thrones. I hope that didn't like wreck something for you. But anyway, those are things we're not going to talk about. Later in the show, we are going to talk about America's and particularly Connecticut's incredibly complex parole system. Parole is like this multi-tiered animal. It really is. Law enforcement, it's prosecutors and a parole officer is a prosecutor and a judge and a psychotherapist and and an advocate and a victim's advocate. They have to do do everything. And it's the thing probably in our criminal justice system you know the least about. New York Times and Frontline have uh, partnered on a terrific project about that. You'll hear about that later on the show. And then at the end, we will talk about uh, the fact that there is a female Doctor Who. 
which I assume, knowing very little about Doctor Who, is nonetheless a good thing. But right now we're going to we feel that it's our almost constitutional obligation to update you on what's going on in the Trump administration and specifically uh, the fallout from that aforementioned June 9th, 2016 meeting at Trump Tower. It's still not being sorted out uh, all the way. Uh, Will Saladin is joining us. He writes about politics, science and technology for Slate. And he's the author of Bearing Right, How Conservatives Won the Abortion War. So welcome back to our show, Will Saladin. Hey, Colin, how are you? Good. So um, first of all, I, I think you know, there has been obviously the, the, the playing out of this story uh, of this chain of emails, setting up this meeting, this, this chain of emails, pretty baldly acknowledging what a it appeared to be about. And, and what we've been treated to really over the last 48 to 72 hours more has been the Trump explanation, particularly the Donald Trump Jr. explanation for this, which I don't know. I mean, seems to be probably satisfying to him and the people around him. But I don't know. It doesn't seem to correspond to our understanding of what the obligations of people in a really prominent political process might be, right? Yeah, they're, uh, the White House's position or the, the Donald Trump Donald Trump Jr. position is everybody does it. Anybody would have taken this meeting. Um, it, unfortunately for him, of course, a lot of people have stood up and said, people in politics, left and right, said uh, they wouldn't have taken this meeting. I mean, the, what's really striking about this meeting is the emails themselves because it is just unbelievably explicit. It's just unbelievably explicit what's uh, in this. Sorry, Colin, can you still hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Okay, so it's the, the email is is so explicit about saying this is a Russian Russian government operation. Uh, it's part of the Russian government's attempt to help uh, candidate Trump. It's almost like one of those entrapment investigations you hear about, where they set you up uh, for you know jihadism or fraud or or heck for child sex offenses, and they advertise that they're doing something. And they they don't actually follow through. It's like the F, an FBI sting. And then you, once you say yes to this email that says this is the Russian government trying to help your father get elected president, it's really almost indefensible whatever you come with, up with after that. Essentially, the defense has been, well, that isn't what they, what they delivered. What they delivered was somebody uh, lobbying for adoptions. But that wasn't why the email was accepted. The reason why the email, why the meeting was accepted was the offer of opposition research. Right. So you write a lot about technology and how about how we use technology. So one of the things that has been bodied forth as a possible explanation or defense by some of the participants, and I think it's more Manafort and Kushner than it is Trump Jr., is this, well, I didn't really read all the way to the bottom of this email. I, I didn't know what this email was about. I get a lot of emails, which is certainly true. You and I both get a lot of emails, and it's impossible to read all of them. I, 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 I don't know that I would show up at a meeting with somebody not having read all the way through the emails, but is this is just that notion, the, is the technology argument persuasive at all? Well, the technology argument would be a little more persuasive if the header on the email, <laughs> not way down in the email, if the header weren't Russia, Clinton, private and confidential. Right. I mean, it couldn't have been what, what really astonished me. You know, I, I was a skeptic of this story for a couple of days. And then when I saw the emails, I could understand why reporters must have thought when they saw this, that it was a forgery because it's just unbelievably explicit. It's almost impossible to have. Respond. And remember, Jared Kushner and Paul Manafort showed up at the appointed time 
that Donald Jr. had asked them to show up. So they clearly read the email. And it's just unthinkable that they didn't see the header, that this was a Russian thing. Um, for them to claim that they didn't read to the bottom of it is almost immaterial once you, once you understand that part of it. So they're in this very strange position of trying to change the subject to what was actually discussed in the meeting. And by the way, we have no idea what was actually discussed in the meeting. We only have their word for it. When there is this just this paper trail that makes it crystal clear, you couldn't possibly have showed up at the time that Donald Trump Jr. requested in the email without having seen that subject line. It, it, there has been, not just pertaining to this, but pertaining to the whole chain of Russia-related events, a tone, I think Emily Bazelon on Slate's political gabfest described it as rhetorical outrage from the Trump camp. You know, how dare you bring up this stuff? It's I mean, obviously, we know the president likes to tweet that it's fake news, that it's a witch hunt. But I mean, even beyond those rather blunt instrument tweets, there's been this kind of drumbeat that was kind of alluded to in that introduction, that this is a disgusting allegation. And I, I don't know. I mean, it, it seems as though at some point, the fact pattern would stop that kind of rhetorical outrage in its tracks, right? You you have a fact p- pattern, you have stuff that's just sort of sitting there on record as as an electronic paper trail that just sort of says, well, this happened and here's what everybody had to know. There isn't that Nixonian question of what did he know and when did he know it? It's right there <laughs> in writing. It, it, I don't know. I don't even know what question I'm asking you. Is the, I guess I'm asking how long is it possible to maintain a tone of indignation when it suggested that this was people up to no good? Well, part of the White House's problem is they don't have an organized message. They have about 10 or 15 different messages, and many of them contradict one another. So, for example, there's the one that you're mentioning of it's it's outrageous. How would, how dare would anyone would dis, would say that we would collaborate with Russians? Then you, but, but simultaneously, of course, we're hearing anybody would have taken this meeting, um, and there's it, part of that is almost an indifference. On the almost an obliviousness on the part of the Trump people as to who it was who was offering the offering the opposition research, they frankly didn't care whether it came from Russians or Ukrainians or French or whoever it was. So they just didn't have the normal filters that a somebody who had grown up in politics would have. That hey, I work for the United States of America, so maybe it's not a great idea for me to be collaborating with some foreign government's intelligence service who's trying to take down my opponent. Um, You know, we were told all along that it would be a great thing to elect somebody who was not a, a standard politician. Well, we elected a businessman, and we shouldn't really be surprised that he behaves like a businessman. So here he's essentially offered, he and his son, who is another businessman, is offered a business proposition. We've got some dirt on your competitor. And of course they accept that because to the Trumps, there is no moral difference between American and Russian, between our country and some other country. They are an international conglomerate. Right. I, you think back to things like when uh, in 2000, the uh, Al Gore camp mistakenly got the George W. Bush debate pl- uh, playbook. Uh, they immediately called the FBI. I mean, there are sort of standards and practices. So, I mean, one of the arguments that, that, that is used by analysts, not so much by the, the participants themselves, is kind of the one that you're talking about, which is these are not political professionals. I mean, Manafort kind of is, but he hasn't worked for a democracy for a really long time. Uh, but these aren't political professionals. It was kind of amateur hour. This is 
is the way they would do things in a business environment. They didn't understand that there was a different set of codes and practices and best practices uh, for for an election. And they may not have known that there were laws governing this, too. I'm not sure how far that gets them. I mean, it, it probably gets them pretty far with some of their base. Yeah. And, and part of the problem with that explanation is there isn't really contrition at this point from Don Jr. or from anyone in the campaign about this. There, there are clearly people who are around Trump, like Kellyanne Conway, who have worked in politics for a long time, who at least sort of understand that they should be embarrassed about this. But Don Jr., even on in uh, like half an hour on Sean Hannity's show, really was unable to put together um, a presentation of of, of contrition. He, he, he said a couple of times, you know, I probably would have done a couple of things differently, but if you watched it, it just wasn't there emotionally. He just didn't feel it. And you could sort of tell that. So I think that the problem with the, we didn't know any better is that even a year later, and even when it's all been explained to him, he doesn't really sense that there's anything wrong with it. So it's not a matter of not being educated in politics. It's a matter of moral education. This is a guy who's just incapable of understanding why this is disloyal. I'm wondering how much you think this is beginning very specifically to hurt the image of the Trump administration. We've got an ABC Washington Post poll today that 70 percent of respondents said that the president's behavior overall, not specific to this Trump Tower meeting or Russian collusion or anything, uh, is uh, at times unpresidential. Sixty three percent of Americans say it was inappropriate for Donald Trump Jr. to take that particular meeting that we're talking about. I mean, things become uh, will become a problem for the Trump administration either because Robert Mueller or some congressional committee decide that these things are problems or if they become political problems. To, to what degree is that particular thermometer starting to, to rise in temperature? Well, there are some big um, warnings in the numbers for the, for the Trump people and for the Republican Party. The, the, mo- the one that struck me most in that ABC Washington Post poll was that this, it's not so much that net approval, disapproval numbers. It's the strong approval, disapproval. So at this point in that latest post ABC poll, Trump's strong approval rating was 25% and his strong disapproval rating was 48%. Okay. So virtually half of the country strongly disapproves of Trump. So when, when Trump and his people go around saying the democratic party doesn't stand for anything except being against Trump, well, that is almost that is almost enough to elect you um, almost in, in much of the country today. Um, and overall, I think the Democratic Party is fine on that. And the problem for Republicans is when Trump is that unpopular, then it is, of, A, of no use to you to have Donald Trump come forward and say, gee, you really should pass my health care uh, repeal bill because he's a net loss for you. Um, and that's you know, people say, where is the president? Why isn't he campaigning for that? Well, guess what? He's an he's a net negative for them. So it's better for them to keep him out of the picture. And that impairs his agenda. And in the long term, the problem is that there has been so much lying from the Trump administration that Republicans know that they can't come forward and defend him, particularly on anything related to credibility or Russia, because they're just going to be undercut. Right. If you. If you were one of the many Republicans who said over the past several months, congressional Republicans coming forward on TV to say there is no evidence of collusion, and then this comes out, 
you're thinking to yourself, what else are these people hiding from me? And so I am not going to stick my neck out and defend this administration. No, no, Republicans aren't saying I would stake my reputation on this because that would be a very foolish thing to do. Although, I mean, you know, there's a chirp from Lindsey Graham here and a bleep from uh, from John McCain there and maybe even Marco Rubio, at least as regards the uh, joint governmental uh, cybersecurity task force with, with Vladimir Putin. But I mean, there isn't there. What there isn't is. I mean, yes, there there aren't full-throated uh, reassurances and support from uh, Republican uh, Congress members, but there's also very little in the way of denunciation. Is is it just too early for that? Yeah, I think they just aren't hurting bad enough. I mean, look, the fundamental problem with this country from today, as opposed to if you go back to the Nixon years, um, and is that the the polarization today is so extreme that um, the, the Republican and, and also redistricting, which is change the balance of these districts. So Republicans are not afraid of losing general elections. They just haven't lost a lot of general elections at the congressional level. They're much more afraid of losing primaries. And you now see people like Jeff Flake under pressure, the senator from Arizona, um, being threatened with primary challenges. So you better vote with us, the Republicans on the health care bill. Um, the, that has to be changed. And that's a big reason why Barack Obama and Eric Holder and some other Democrats are trying to change the redistricting, because the fundamental equation that has to be changed is that congressional Republicans have to become as afraid of losing general elections as they presently are of losing primaries. Once that can be accomplished, then rationality is reintroduced into the process because Republicans start behaving like they care about that half of America that recognizes Donald Trump as fundamentally dishonest. But that's, you know, so there, there is a structural problem getting in the way of the rationality you're waiting for. Um, Will Saladin, last thing I wanted to ask you about. Um, over the weekend, we saw something that's happened a, a lot in the Trump administration, which was somebody from the Trump administration or family or representative thereof effectively denouncing some b- basic internal aspect of the federal government. I mean, Trump himself has often had harsh words in his brief presidency for the defense establishment or the intelligence establishment. Now you've got Jay Sekulow, the attorney for Donald Trump Jr., it's kind of sneeringly saying, well, if this meeting at Trump Tower was so heinous, if these people were so heinous, you know, why didn't the Secret Service do something about that? Why didn't they screen them? The Secret Service has snapped back immediately because Donald Trump Jr. was not actually under our under our protection uh, at that point. But it just seems like an odd thing. This I would the Secret Service would be people you would really want to get along with, not make them a scapegoat at the drop of a hat. Yeah, you know, what you're saying makes perfect sense. And it's part of a pattern. Trump has gone after, think about it, in his tweets and his denunciations over the last several months. He's gone after the CIA, the FBI, the Department of Justice. He's gone after the freaking National Park Service. So, you know, over the crowd estimates for the, the inaugural. So he has, and CBO, remember, he's gone after the Congressional Budget Office saying you can't trust their estimates. There has been this program of Trump people denouncing any institution of government or putting, staking the credibility of Trump against all of these institutions. You would think over time this would come back to bite him. It amazingly, they have gotten away with it for a long time, and that that's part of why they work so hard to discredit the idea that anyone can be trusted, starting with the news media. I believe in my bones, Colin, that over time, the accumulation of so many institutions on the other side from Trump, 
will hurt him, that eventually people will say, you know what, I do believe the combination of CIA, FBI, DOJ, Secret Service, and I don't believe Donald Trump who says they're all lying. But I keep waiting for that day, Colin, and it hasn't happened yet. But I believe it will come. I think some of these people are going to run into each other at their kids' soccer games or something. Anyway, Will Saladin, thank you so much. Will Saladin writes about politics, science, and technology for Slate, the author of Bearing Right, How Conservatives Won the Abortion War. Thanks for joining us on the Monday Scramble. Thanks, Colin. And we'll be back with, uh, I think you will find this really informative, and it's a really fabulous documentary about the parole system. We got a devil for a president. Resist, brother, The parole system is probably the part of the American criminal justice system most people don't know very much about. Uh, we don't see it on primetime television. We don't talk about it that much either. And it actually is, in a lot of ways, the most subtle, complex, nuanced, and multi-pronged part of the parole system. Uh, as is observed in this new Frontline documentary we're about to talk about, parole officers are kind of like... They're like judges and cops and prosecutors and sometimes also like defense attorneys all rolled into one. They have to make incredibly complicated judgments uh, about very flawed human beings usually, and mostly they're known by their failures. Uh, this fabulous uh, documentary on Frontline uh, will be playing on Tuesday night at 10 p.m. here on our uh, our Eastern stations. It's called Life on Parole, uh, and the director, Matthew O'Neill, is joining us right now. Uh, Matthew O'Neill has won multiple Emmy Awards for his documentary Baghdad ER and was nominated for an Oscar for his short film Redemption. Matthew O'Neill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Colin. Actually, before I even ask you a single question, I'm going to play a little clip from this documentary. We're going to see Errol Brantley, who probably is the most telegenic and dramatic of the offenders uh, that you look at. Uh, his big issue is that the love of his life, the person he considered his, considers his rock and his support system, is somebody he can't have contact with because she's legally identified as a victim. You're going to hear him talking to his uh, parole officer, I think, about that. What happened out in the lobby raises my level of concern. What did I do? No contact with previous crime victims. Everybody from your first crime to your current crime is a previous crime victim. The you can't has, see. The state has broken state, us up. Email. You can't. She's my support network, contact. Officer Pollage. Okay. I got guys that can't see their kids because the kids live with their crime victims. They sure as hell have never walked them up into my lobby. So today you're going to a halfway house. You're due back in the house at a certain time every single night. I just understand that it doesn't bother you that I don't have people in my life. I'm going to warn you one more time. Yeah. Don't tell me how I think or how I feel. Understood? It's got nothing to do with this. What I'm doing right now is managing somebody with about four or five misconducts right now that would land them in jail. And then to put the icing on the cake, walk their victim into my office lobby, all right? I really didn't and know And put it right out there in front of everybody. Like, I get to get supervised differently. I really well, you know, don't get I didn't to get know supervised it was that differently. Serious. I'm sorry. I really didn't know it was that serious. I thought it was it's something. It's extremely serious. Nothing you've done so far you've taken seriously. So let's just talk uh, for a second, Matthew O'Neill, about that scene and tease it apart a little bit, talk a little bit about who's there. You're hearing Officer Pollich. Uh, he is the parole officer. Errol Brantley is a longtime opiate addict serving time for drug possession and burglary. You can read about him, about him in the New York Times today. They're a partner on this project. He's been in and out, in and out of jail 11 times. He, I, on the other hand, a guy who's fairly easy to root for, right? He seems like kind of a talented guy. He's handsome. He's well-spoken. But there's this problem, right? I mean— we 
what we heard in that clip, uh, anybody who's been watching the documentary for however long it's been running at that point, 30 minutes or so, we know it's a serious problem if he has contact with Catherine. We certainly think it's an insane thing for him to do to walk Catherine right into the parole meeting or right up to the threshold of the parole meeting. And he doesn't seem to get it. What are we supposed to make of that? You know, I think Errol is one of the most confounding people that we followed. I won't give away all the things that occur in the in the film, but despite his his eloquence and his accessibility in terms of being able to describe the challenges of his life on parole, the decisions he makes, uh, whether due to his addiction or just his personality, don't make any sense. And when I listened to all the different roles you described for a parole officer in the in the intro to that clip, I was thinking about Officer Paulich, and we could all. So add drug counselor, housing advocate, psychotherapist, psychotherapist. Exactly. That the parole officers are dealing with some of the most complex people that our criminal justice system deals with on a day-to-day basis. And they're making calls that are very difficult, that often are seemed unjust by the individuals who have to live under the control of the parole officer. But as you said, it's right. The parole officer feels a responsibility because they're the ones that in some way will be answerable should something go wrong. Yeah, and and so Errol is interesting that way, and in some ways, uh, he does seem to be this twig that was snapped a long time ago and just can't get itself straight. He really doesn't seem to know that it's a bad idea to bring this person he is forbidden to see right up to the the metal detector to go face-to-face with his parole officer who has repeatedly denied him contact. I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a cognitive dissonance to him. And a lot of the strictures and a lot of the rules that are applied by the parole system don't make sense to the individuals underneath the the control of the parole system. And it makes it very, very difficult to have a productive relationship. You know, I think Connecticut has made great strides, not only in bringing down its prison population, but in reforming the way that parole is run, giving people more second chances and focusing on reintegration. But even within the rubric of those reforms, you still see that the individual cases, those individual decision-making moments, they wind up being based on some sort of fundamental dishonesty because the parolees, there's so many rules that they have to comply with that they're inevitably breaking one of them almost at any given time. And they don't understand that their parole officer is necessarily there as a an advocate or a, a back check and won't just send them back to prison because they understand the rules as violations. Yeah, one of the other uh, protagonists in this, uh, Rob Sullivan, says, you know, I'm about to go in and buy some coffee at a 7-Eleven. I could get violated for that. And one of the things that's remarkable about this is the level of cooperation that you got from these, particularly these four offenders from the parole system as well. I mean, the level of access is incredible. To what do you attribute that? I think that uh, there is a sincere commitment to transparency inside the Department of Corrections. And it's something that attracted us to look at Connecticut in the first place. You know, these are very complicated, nuanced jobs. It is probably one of the more complicated, sticky, high-tension areas of our entire criminal justice system. And basically, they invited us in to look at the soft underbelly of the criminal justice system, because I think they believe that despite the complications of what they do, there's something fundamentally worthwhile at looking at these interactions. You know, I haven't seen the inside 
of a parole meeting before. Before starting this project, I really had no idea what that dynamic was like, what those rules were like. And I think it's very important for us as a society to understand what's happening inside these meetings, to understand the difficulties that both the parolees and the parole officers face as they make these decisions. Because we're talking about a very significant number of people on parole throughout the United States. And, you know, often when we think about criminal justice, everyone throws around the um, almost two million people who were incarcerated, but we have to remember that there's another 4.7 million who are somehow supervised in the community, either on probation or on parole. Right. So I think thumbnail is like about half of the inmates who get paroled or on parole wind up violating enough to get sent back to prison. So one of the things that's happened here in Connecticut, uh, one of the things that they that they are essentially saying is, well, if if you're violating people and sending them back to prison that fast and that consistently, you don't have a parole system. You know, you you just kind of have a revolving door for at least half of the population you're working with. So what we see in this documentary are parole officers, even some of the kind of hard ass ones. You heard how how angry Mr. Pollich sounded there in that clip. But I mean, he is carving out all kinds of room for this man to not be sent back to prison, right? How did that look, I don't know, through your lens? I think it was surprising to me on day one, even though I knew that the um, reforms were in place. You sort of naturally think, well, if the offender uses heroin, boom, he should go back to prison. And you're sort of simple understanding of the system. And in fact, you know, uh, if you've talked about addiction at all, relapse is part of recovery. And in understanding the idea of giving these offenders second chances, I think that the parole system is really changing to an understanding or questioning of what function do we want parole to do in our society? What function do we want incarceration to have in our society? Is it to punish people or is it to make our society safer? Is it retribution or is it offering a helping hand so that uh, I think we'd all be better off if Errol and any other of the people in this film became tax-paying citizens of Connecticut who are you know, contributing to the society instead of being a drain on it. Let's look at one of the other people that you followed. This is Jessica Proctor. In, in, in a weird way, there's kind of a lesson here, which is if you watch the initial interviews with Errol Brantley and with Jessica Proctor, you might conclude that Jessica Proctor has the, the worst chance uh, of succeeding in the parole system. She's been in prison for a pretty serious assault. She slashed a girl's face with a razor blade when she was 18. The Pretty much the first thing she says to us in the documentary is she essentially feels she was overpunished. Uh, she was released from Connecticut uh, prisons early, given a five-year probation. But she also has a really great relationship with her parole officer. Uh, here's Jessica Montoya and Jessica Brocker. I'm going through the same thing with my son. Okay, with your son. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different animal. My whole incarceration, he's been a second honor student, and now he's messing up. You have to understand, okay, you are the mother. But for the past 10 years, you have not been his mother. So for you to come into the picture and start calling the shots, it might be hard. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Jessica. Mm-hmm. Concentrate on the now, concentrate on the future. Okay. Thank you. Uh, one of the things that I think emerges is that first impressions can be kind of misleading, which we should probably know by now. And also the chemistry between a parole officer uh, and, and a parolee seems, Matt, to be a key to this. And that's not something that you can map out on a cocktail napkin, how two people are going to get along in kind of a high-stress situation. 
Exactly. Now, how, how do you train for all the eventualities that a parole officer is going to face inside the, the dynamic of these relationships? There's so many different facets to it. You know, I think about, you know, an, an education for people who are struggling to learn. They have what's called an IEP, an individualized education program. And in the dynamic of these parole officer, parolee relationships, I think you see success when the whole process is highly individualized. So when a parole officer connects with a parolee, believes in them, tests them, pushes them, I, you know, I don't think we saw any officer who was a, um, a pushover by any stretch of the imagination. But that dynamic that develops between the two individuals, these two human beings, when they look at each other as human beings and not as statistics, I think can be really beneficial. Right. So in many respects, this documentary is also looking at the laboratory that is criminal justice reform in Connecticut. Uh, Governor Dan Malloy has made this one of the signatures of his administration, although he's not been able to get everything that he wants under the, that's under the umbrella of the so-called Second Chance Initiative. He said to kind of scale it down. I mean, I think it's easy for somebody like me. I'm a newspaper columnist and a radio talk show host, and I can sit here and opine about this stuff and basically talk very approvingly about, say, parole reform and say, look, you know, obviously we have too many people in prison. We lock too many people up. Uh, we're, the, we're the world's jailer. We've got to do something about this. But, you know, you watch these parole officers and they're clearly struggling with their mission, right? They, they had a mission that was a little bit different, say, 10 years ago. Uh, it was a little bit more binary in the way that you were describing. You know, you get, you get a second chance, you screw up, you go back. Now they've got a different mandate. And, and this documentary, Matt, really ex- excited my sympathies or empathies anyway for these parole officers trying to figure out exactly how tough and how nuanced to be. Yeah, I think that it's a it's it's a very very complex world that they're operating in. And I was struck over and over again by people inside the Department of Corrections with an because they had an almost vocational dedication to what they were doing. You see it happening inside and you understand just how complex the details are and how highly uh, relevant the individuals who are being supervised are too. It's very difficult to have success on the outside without working yourself and being committed on a day-to-day basis as an individual and watching everyone navigate this. There's no playbook. There's no rule book. Um, It's a case-by-case situation and and sometimes people are going to get it wrong. Um, I want to play one more cl- short clip here. This is uh, an offender named Von Gresham. Had kind of a vicious, vicious cycle throughout his life uh, of offending. Uh, his last conviction was for armed robbery. He talks about how it was usually usually used a bat to do this. He and his parole officer, I think it's fair to say, do not see eye to eye. He's been in a halfway house. One of the things this documentary does is talk a little bit about how effective uh, at least on behalf of law enforcement, people's phones are. People who are parolees nonetheless record some of the things that they do and say on the phones that they have. So she's found out something about him. Let's hear that clip. Like I, I said, so no. like, I said <laughs> like I said, I if you it. if you did what you were supposed to, it's, this has nothing to do with me whatsoever. No, you just your attitude, like, you know, it, it's nothing for you My to hands are send tied. people to jail or anything, like, you know. Well, when guys are drinking in the house, people right? People drink on the street. People I don't, smoke on the street. Okay, let me say this. I don't care what other people are doing on the street. So you have family I members that don't care. smoke on the street? It doesn't matter. I it only don't matter care. about your family members? I only care about you. You don't care about me. The, I'm in charge of your supervision. So don't say that. Don't exactly. say you care about me. Okay, so <laughs> I'm only concerned about what you're doing in a halfway house. Okay. So when I see pictures of you drinking with other offenders in a halfway house, it's blatantly clear that you're drinking 
I need to do something about it. Mm -hmm. Okay, any other questions? Concerns, comments? No concerns, no comments. Okay. So we're talking to Matthew O'Neill. He's the director of Life on Parole, a documentary that's produced by Frontline in collaboration with The New York Times. Uh, it's going to be airing, uh, I believe, on our station here at 10 p.m. on Tuesday night. So, you know, in, in this exchange and in the story of Vaughn Gresham, you see one of the fundamental ironies or paradoxes of the parole system. You have people who basically have never been particularly good at following rules, and they're in a system now where they have more rules to follow than ever before. So Mr. Gresham's claim is, well, I, and there's one thing I like to do, and that's drink, and I don't harm anybody when I drink. But, I mean, obviously that's against the rules. Right, and, and Vaughn's a young man, uh, and he just can't get it through his head just how serious the consequences are. I mean, one of the things you'll see early on in the film is that he's been in and out of a number of halfway houses over the past year and a half, and he keeps on making mistakes, making mistakes that put him back behind bars. And the way he constantly expresses himself is upset that the things that he's doing would be otherwise okay in society if he wasn't on parole. And he's got a long period of parole ahead of him right now. So how is he going to transition to a successful uh, life on the outside? Is it reasonable to, you know, ask someone, uh, an adult at the age of 24, to not occasionally consume alcohol? I don't know. It will certainly continue to get Vaughn reincarcerated if he doesn't figure out a way to navigate the system as it exists. And I got time for one more question. And I guess the question is, I'm going to hand you a magic wand and let you fix one part of this system. Based on what you've seen, what do you do with the, with the wand? Well, I mean, I think in anything, more resources is more likely to lead to more success. And I think you see that play out in our stories. The individuals who received more attention, who see, received more aid, whether it was in grants to take classes or in housing subsidies. And we followed a number of people, about 10 people in Connecticut for the course of a year and a half. And again and again, the more people received, the more likely they were to uh, succeed. doesn't mean that it worked every time. And some of those resources, people could look at as being squandered, but it gave people chances to turn back into contributing members of society. And the other thing is family, because when you have that system of support outside of the state, that gives you a foundation to build a successful life on. And it's true for, for you and me, and it's true for people getting out of prison. All right. Matthew O'Neill, director of Life on Parole. Watch the documentary on Frontline, then read the New York Times series. Thanks for being with us today, Matt. Tom, thanks so much for having me. Okay. So these companies, they donate to candidates cash for the ones that's tough on crime in a state. Today's show is produced by Betsy Kaplan, with help from me, Kyone Wolf, and our intern, Carmen Baskoff. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ed Sheeran. On tomorrow's show, we take a look at the evolution of bastards. And now, back to Colin. That's right. Tomorrow's show will be keyed a little bit to Game of Thrones and a little bit uh, to Alexander Hamilton and, and a little bit to some actual research into the evolving notion of a bastard in Middle Europe and the Middle Ages. Or something like that. All right, so it's time to talk about Doctor Doctor Who, and uh, in fact, uh, you probably know uh, at this point that the thirteenth iteration of Doctor Who, the thirteenth Time Lord, will be a Time Lady. Uh, although that even that's disputed in the very disputatious world of uh, Who fandom. Uh, joining us now to set us straight and uh, unsnarl some of these Gordian knots is Ross Rudiger, lover of pop culture who writes about Doctor Who for New York Magazine. Also has uh, one of the vital and essential 
Doctor Who blogs the Rude Morgue. That's R-U-E-D, like Ross's name. Um, so welcome to our conversation and our show, Ross Rudiger. Colin, how are you doing? Thank you for having me on. I'm I'm doing fine. I'm going to, first of all, just um, beg your forgiveness and just say that although I have a well-deserved uh, place in the pantheon of uh, American nerds. Doctor Who is one of the few things I've just never really nerded out uh, about. So uh, I'm in a good position to ask you some very blunt questions about it anyway as we set up this whole premise. So who or what is Doctor Who? Uh, Doctor Who is a time-traveling alien. Been on television for 54 years, give or take a, a few years. Um Travels through time and space, righting wrongs and saving societies and basically just being a good person. So one of the things that's happened, I mean, obviously most people know the news, that the the new uh, Doctor Who uh, is going to be Jodie Whittaker, an actress. Uh, and one of the things that has uh, developed as kind of a philosophical battle on social media is whether Doctor Who implicitly does have a gender. Is he, his, is Doctor Who, I see, I shouldn't say he, is Doctor Who, who kind of an alien function as opposed to one thing or another? How do you interpret that? Well, you know, I just look at the the narrative of the series, Colin, and ever since 2011, it has been established within the canon of the television series that Time Lords can change gender. So this development that happened yesterday that was announced uh, has been a long time coming. Uh, the first time that, the, that uh, the idea of even making the Doctor a woman was first floated just as an idea back in 1980. So this is not new news. Uh, people have had a long time to get used to this idea. Um, we should say that over the time, because in fact there are, because Doctor Who does essentially ref refresh or regenerate anyway, it's kind of built into the plot that there will be different Doctors Who. Uh, there have been, if you are in British show business and you haven't at least been mentioned or whispered as a possible Doctor Who on one of these iterations, you need a new agent. Uh, everybody seems to have been brought up as possible Doctor Whos. But, you know, Ross, I, I know that you're currently producing and writing a documentary called Indoctrinated about Doctor Who fans. Uh, yes. And, and Doctor Who fans seem to be a special lot. They don't seem quite like, say, Game of Thrones fans or Spider-Man fans. Uh, I mean, they've signed up, first of all, for a longer haul. Many of the early fans of Doctor Who are now dead and can't be bothered uh, by uh, who has been picked. But um, what are these What are they like? I mean, I'm just watching some of the debates they're having. I'm trying to get a handle of. Is, is there? You know, a, yeah, go ahead. I, I'm, I just think Doctor Who fans are, are really the most brilliant fans out of all the fans in, in the world. Um I think by you know there there has been resistance to this casting decision uh, from people uh, who I think they all all feel the show belongs to them. We all do, um, but I think more often than not the the reaction has been to embrace this change, and I'm really really delighted. I think we're all very very excited about the future of the show. There are people that are are resistant to it, and that that's a shame. But um, hopefully they'll come around because I think Jodie Whittaker is is a brilliant actress. And we should be so lucky to have such a great actor every time uh, the new Doctor is announced as someone uh, like Jodie. Yes, so she, people have seen her in Broadchurch or Attack the Block, which is a, uh, a terrific movie. Um, so I, I just want to go back to this thing about the fans. So 
Doctor Who, I think it's fair to say, does not have the production values of, say, Game of Thrones or certainly the current iterations of Star Wars or Star Trek. Or There's something else that, that Doctor Who fans are gravitating towards. I do happen to listen to a British radio show hosted by a comedian named Frank Skinner, for whom Doctor Who is absolutely the, the center of Western culture. He actually got to be in a guest role just by plaintively yeah. whining for long enough so they said, all right, you can be on the show. But And he's a very, very smart guy. He'd rather watch an episode of Doctor Who than just about anything. So it's obviously not for production values. What is the, what's the hook? What, what gets a person like you hooked? Uh, you know, for me, it's just always been, and this, again, ties into, into this casting announcement yesterday. I think what doc, the great thing about Doctor Who is it is about infinite possibilities. And when you have a show that is about infinite possibilities, then anything can happen. And it can run for 54 years, or maybe another 54 years. Um, you know, the, the show has, has not worn out the, the uh, amount of topics that it can explore, the number of distant planets that it can visit. Doctor Who is, it is the infinite. And and I think that is what what draws me to it. Is it? Um, I, I also I, I mean I mean so, I'm so a virgin about all this that um, I mean it seems to me that the people that I know who who like Doctor Who are smart. Uh, and and do have this kind of double edged attitude towards it that it, there's there's a, it's, it's a bit of a lark in some ways, but as has been revealed on social media today, something people take in a deadly serious manner in other ways. They do. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Well, you know, I uh, you know in in the documentary that I'm producing, um, you know, we set out to find people whose lives had been changed by the show, and uh, and as a result had had gone out into the world and decided to make their own changes. So, like, for instance, my first subject is a, an engineer in uh, Los Angeles named Brian Wiega, and he's a brilliant man who just happens to embrace the, as he often phrases it, the, the utter silliness of the television show. I think that Brian, for instance, finds it uh, to be a release from the, the, the day-to-day... Um, I don't know how to phrase it. The, the the thought processes that he engages in on, in a daily on a daily basis at work, and he can he can release uh, from that and and enjoy a bit of whimsy through through a television show like Doctor Who. Um, the other thing that I, I think about is, I mean, this longevity, it's, it's incredible. I mean, a franchise like this that's lasted 54 years and a franchise that has at its heart a, a science fiction concept that's lasted 54 years. And reading some of the stuff on social media, and you kind of directed us to, like, a situ- uh, I think it's the Doctor Who website itself dealing with a, a bunch of haters, more or less, who are saying that they're like never going to watch this again, which seems kind of <laughs> unlikely somehow. But uh, I, there's something about the reliability of it, too, right? I mean, even that man that you were just describing, the, the notion that this thing that was around for you 30 years ago is still around for you now, if you need to chill out, if you need to relax, if you need uh, a new Doctor Who episode. It's coming. Um, you can maybe see why people would think, oh, well, if you're going to really change, it's like changing the formula of Coke or something, you know, it's like, well, no, I need it to be the thing that it's always been. Uh, I, I, guess, I, yeah. I guess my reaction to that is, well, first of all, 
Nobody said that the doctor can't be a man again someday. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is just the next doctor. Um, and I guess the next, my next reaction to that is, well, I suppose if you genuinely hate it that much, the idea of a female doctor, you still have the 37 <laughs> seasons that were produced prior to go back and spend your time with. Yeah, I if, think... if these next coming three seasons or four seasons or however long she's the doctor are genuinely that offensive to you. Uh, which I find unfathomable, but uh, apparently <laughs> it's easier to fathom than than I would I would like to believe. So let me ask you uh, one possibly final question, depending on how much time we have, and, and this one is one that you might have to think about for a second. How about somebody like me? Like I, I wouldn't mind. Not that I'm pretty, I'm pretty well heavily nerd booked already, but I wouldn't mind getting into Doctor Who. What do I have to do? Do I have to go back to the beginning? Can I jump in somewhere? Uh, what if somebody's listening to our conversation and thinking, you know, I, I should try that out somehow? How, can you try I think it out? That yeah, the very best place to start with Doctor Who these days for your modern television viewer. Mm. Uh, first of all, you, it's a, if you do streaming, um, it's only available here in the United States on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. Um, I think start with the first season that was produced in 2005, the first mm-hmm. season of the revival, which starred Christopher Eccleston. And I think just go from there. Um, I think within within a half a dozen episodes, you'll have figured out whether or not this show is for you. Its mission statement is pretty clear from the get-go. All right. Is Christopher Eccleston the guy who was just on... Uh, the Leftovers. The Leftovers, yeah. Yeah, that's him. He was the ninth, no, the the ninth Doctor. Yes, the ninth Doctor doctor came back and did it for one season only in two thousand five, and then they brought in the tenth Doctor and the eleventh Doctor and the twelfth, and now we're coming up on the thirteenth. So a lot has been crammed into the past ten seasons. Right, and somehow or other, the universe is going to hold together even through uh, the arrival of Jodie Whittaker, who I'm sure will be fabulous here. Ross Rudiger, thank you so much for talking to us, and you can see more of his work at New York Magazine or The Rude Morgue, a blog that he does uh, in which he dissects individual Doctor Who episodes. All right, I hear by that music, which I take to be Doctor Who music. I hear by that music. See, I don't know anything about Doctor Who, and it's like weird. It's strange because I'm a total nerd, right? I mean, I don't know. It's like I feel like I need a multivitamin now. I feel like they have a deficiency. All right, thanks uh, very much to, to Betsy Kaplan for pulling this show together. She has no deficiencies. And thanks also to Kion Wolf for doing a great job on the board. Tomorrow we'll be back with bastards. No, no, not that kind of bastard. I mean, bastards like on Game of Thrones or Alexander Hamilton. That kind of bastard. This female Doctor Who business is outrageous. I mean, which is it? Doctor Who or Doctor Whom? Am I right? At least it'll be cheaper to produce since she's only going to be making 74 cents to the dollar.